I want to keep talking about what it means to die with Christ. The Bible says, my old man was crucified with Christ, yet I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Who is my old man? What is my old man? What makes up my old man? And what is it that I'm leaving behind? Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward for those things which are ahead. Your past belongs in your past. You can't drop these mics, but just, that's it. Our past belongs in our past. Our bad decisions, our mistakes. You know, even, I'm going to say this, even the good things, they're in our past. How many have ever seen Napoleon Dynamite? You remember the uncle who's living in the past of his glory days of, of, of football in high school? His past is in the past. But he didn't want to, to come to terms with that. Good or bad, our past is in the past. It's interesting, when God wants to bless us, he often uses people. When the devil wants to trip us up, he often uses people. We, we have a tendency to look at what has happened, to look at our life situation, to look at our past, and think that that is the definition of who we are. In Ruth, it's only four chapters long, and we have the story of a woman from Israel, a, a successful lady who had two sons. Now, you have to understand that in the olden times, you didn't have Social Security. You didn't pay in and then get a guaranteed pension. If you wanted to be taken care of after you were too old to work for yourself, you had kids. That was your Social Security program, literally. So Ruth, with her husband and her two sons, moved away from Israel to Moab. And then her husband died. Her two sons had each gotten married, but before they had a chance to have any kids, both of them died. So there she is. The only family she has are two widowed daughter-in-laws. And this is, is the recipe for financial disaster in that time. She, she no longer has anyone who would make a, a significant living who would then provide for her. And this is what she said in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 20. And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Like, her name was too positive. But call me Mara. Mara means bitter. For the Almighty, so she says, because God has been dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went out full. I used to have everything. And then the Lord took me home empty again. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Lord or the Almighty has afflicted me. This is, this is Ruth's perspective. Now, I need you to understand something. The Bible is inspired by God. But not everything that is said is said by God. He inspired that it be written down. But we have record of the devil talking. You realize that? There are verses you can pull out of context. Here we have Ruth saying that God has afflicted her. Now, is that... She says God afflicted her. Does that mean she's right? No, not necessarily, not at all. There are quite a few verses that I have heard pulled out of context. As a pastor, I just cringe. I'm like... When somebody is quoting something that was said by the devil, by someone who wasn't godly, by someone who was later proved wrong. One of the most famous is in Job. Job goes through all of that trouble, and his friends come, and they give him some horrible advice. And then God comes on the scene, and he says, who are these people who give terrible advice? And then he gives his answer, and Job ends up blessed and restored. Guess what people quote like crazy in Job? The friends and their terrible advice. When they came and said, God did this to you, he, he's, you know, no matter what you do, he'll always... No. So she says, God did this to me. She looks at her situation and she says, this is what God has done to me. This is what God, basically what she's saying is, the situation I'm in right now is the situation God wants me to be in and stay in. Notice the flaw in her understanding. But how many of us have been tempted to think that same thing? We look at our situation, we look at our, our, our bank account this morning, and we say, this, this is my destiny. This must be what God wants for me. But we look at the situation. She, she began, she was to the point of wanting to change her name. She says, don't even call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Because that's how I feel and that's how I see myself. And that's, that's what my situation appears to deserve in this moment. I believe there are people listening right now who are in a place like that, where you just look at your situation and you just say, I, this isn't what I wanted to be, this isn't who I wanted to be, this isn't where I wanted to be, this isn't how I wanted to be. But instead of believing that there's some place else, you, you're, you're ready to just accept, stay. Ruth was blessed to have a, a daughter, or sorry, Naomi was blessed to have a daughter, Ruth, daughter-in-law, who didn't let her quit. In fact, Naomi told her, leave me, just leave me, go off, maybe you can find a husband, maybe you can do that, and, and she says, just leave me, and Ruth said, no, come with me, I'll, 
you know, I'm going to keep going forward. I'm going to keep moving forward with God's plan for my life, and let's see where it goes. When we get to chapter 4, verse 14, we discover that they went back to Israel. They had nothing. Ruth went out to beg to accept uh, scraps, but she won the favor of the, the owner of the field where she was at, and she ends up marrying that man and ends up providing both for her kids and then having children, and then her son was Obed, who was Jesse's father. Jesse was David's father. David was the most famous king of Israel ever, and David was the great-great-great-great-grandfather for Jesus. All of that. So Naomi, she gets to be in the lineage of Jesus. And this is what she says in verse 4. She says, the the woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than seven sons has given birth. This is when Obed was born and they went to Naomi and they said, you know, you were all bummed out about losing two sons. You didn't realize that your daughter-in-law was a better for you than seven sons would have been. She was ready to write off her situation because of her past. We know that David, King David, he made some dumb decisions. Anybody remember any of those dumb decisions? When I say David and Bathsheba, we remember. He's associated. He made stupid decisions, but he repented and God blessed him. I mean, he didn't just make dumb decisions. He made wicked decisions. He didn't just have an affair. He then also had the husband of the woman with whom he had the affair killed. That is really wrong. Not just stupid, that is wicked. I don't want to raise of hands, but how many of you don't have a past quite that bad? You know what I mean? Like, we look at that, you, you're doing okay. Solomon, his son, he made mistakes. Over and over in the Bible, we can find people who made mistakes. Peter denounced Christ. Samson, God's strongest man, he made a bunch of stupid mistakes. Your past doesn't have to define you. I want to take a moment. In in most churches, we celebrate a good testimony. You ever had somebody comes and they share, you know what, I was was in uh, this struggle and I robbed banks or I did this or that and, and now God has saved me and I'm doing so much better. We're like, praise God. We recognize that God forgives sin, but 
There is a group of people that within the church have many times come up against a different type of, of, of treatment. As if their mistake or their past is somehow different. And that's divorced people. Why? First of all, not every divorce is sin. The Bible says you can divorce in a situation where the Bible, he says, he describes that as, as, as adultery. Just a second, I want to read here. It says in Matthew 5.27, it says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to any of you who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. What is Jesus pointing out there? What, what causes you to, to commit sin? It's your heart. He says, you always thought you had to go out and do the deed. But I tell you, if you are wishing to do the deed and just don't have an opportunity, you already have sin in your heart. Jesus says, sin is a heart issue. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gorge it out, throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for the whole part to, uh, body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Continues, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than to lose the whole thing in hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this, this is the verse that has thrown some people off so far. Because they said, well, if a divorced person gets remarried and it's still adultery, then they must never have been divorced in the first place, not in God's eyes. Because why, be why would it be adultery to marry someone who's already divorced? There are entire churches that teach that you're never actually divorced. Even though in Deuteronomy, God established divorce and said, this is what you do and then you're free to remarry. But then Jesus' comment here confused people. The Pharisees were coming to him and asking him, is it, is it lawful for us to put away our wives for any reason, what they would do is they'd get married. Then they'd see someone else they'd rather be married to, and they'd be like, well, I'll divorce her, and I'll go marry her. And then, for any reason, she burnt the toast. Historically, there are accounts of the Pharisees divorcing their spouses because they were unclean. Well, they were unclean once a month. So they just wait around. Oop, you're unclean. I have a reason. And Jesus said this. He says, if you leave your spouse to go be with someone else, what are you? Adulterer. Now, if you insert a divorce decree in there, does that change anything? Does it change your heart? No. It's the same as what he described a moment ago, where you look at a woman lustfully with your eyes, you don't actually commit it, See, we understood what he meant when he said that about lust. We understood what he meant when he said, you have heard it said, do not kill. I say to you, whoever says to someone, raka, in other words, they, they like cuss him out, wishing they could kill him. In other words, Jesus said, sin is a heart issue. We thought, and I say we, the church, the church thought that sin was a situation issue. If, if sin is a situation issue, then you end up in these situations 
where you have a Christian who is abandoned by someone who was unwilling to stay committed to them, left them years ago, may have gotten remarried, they're down there, and that person is sitting here going, I want to get remarried 10 years later, but would I be committing adultery? Because my situation says, and then someone says to them, well, were they unfaithful to you? And they're like, well, and I've, I've literally heard someone say this. Well, my husband left me and, and forced me, like gave me no choice but to get a divorce. But I don't know if I'm free to be married because I don't know if he ever cheated on me. I know he met a woman at a hotel when we were married, but he says they just talked. So in, in her mind, she believes that the only way that she is right with God and not an adulteress is if he was actually unfaithful. And her standing as a sinner or an adulteress becomes dependent on his actions she can't know. Does that make any sense at all? No, Jesus was not making a new legalistic situation where he says, guess what, everybody? I have decided to change the rules around divorce and make it so that only if the other person was unfaithful do I ever acknowledge. No, that's not what he was saying. He was saying what he kept saying about everything else. Sin is a heart issue. If you leave your spouse because you just want to be with somebody else, I don't care how you do it, you have an adulterous heart. Period. And then he says, oh, and if your spouse leaves you, well, of course not. He says, except for the person, remember? Except for the person who divorced for sexual immorality. In other words, if they left, of course you didn't. If you didn't, if you were left because they were unfaithful, that wasn't an unfaithful heart on your part, was it? No. It's a heart issue. I want to say clearly to anybody in that situation, according to Scripture, adultery is a heart issue. If you committed adultery, you need to repent. And until you repent, you're an adulterer. When you repent, you aren't anymore. If someone... If, if you experienced a divorce in your life, the Bible says God recognizes that. You aren't married anymore. He spoke to the woman at the well. She had been married five times and was living with a guy. And Jesus said to her, you've been married. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. You know what that means? That means Jesus acknowledged five Marriages, divorce, remarriage, divorce, marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce. And then she was shacking up and he said, that doesn't count. Now, that isn't, we're not encouraging anybody to follow her example at all. But the point I'm making is that the concept that has been promoted within the church, that somehow that is a stain on someone's life that they cannot go beyond. There's another scripture that says that a leader, a deacon within the church should be the husband of one wife. Now, in a time where polygamy was somewhat common, what do you think they meant? One wife. Otherwise, we'd say if, if someone 
was married and then their spouse died and then they remarried. We're like, oh, you can't lead in the church anymore. But that's what we've done with people in some denominations who were divorced. They say, oh, you, you don't have one wife? Yes, you have one wife. Just like the woman at the well. She had five husbands. She currently had none. Zero. One wife. Anyway, hopefully that helps somebody that was kind of a sidetrack. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 6, 23 through 24. For the commandment is a lamp and the law of light, and reproofs of instruction are a way of life to keep you from the evil woman. Reproofs of instruction are a way of life. We are not expected to live flawless, perfect lives. The Bible says it should be a way of life for us to open the scripture, read, and see, I'm doing something wrong. I need to adjust the way that I live. We are expected to have mistakes in our past. Those should should happen And then we correct them. We are to be corrected. I'm going to read the verse I opened with again. I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I reach forward for the things which are ahead. In the Bible, there are so many examples of people who went through crazy things. Joseph. Joseph was a bit of a snob. He was rubbing in his brother's noses the visions and dreams that God was giving him and the favoritism that his father was bestowing on him. That was a mistake. And his brothers nearly killed him for it. Instead, they sold him into slavery. He had a really rough past. But you know something? One of my favorite parts about the story of Joseph is that everywhere he went, God's blessing kept following him and it would begin to lift him up. So he gets sold into slavery. He ends up in this man's house, Potiphar's house, and, and he gains favor and he becomes second in command inside the home. But all of that honor and prestige gets the attention of the man's wife who tries to seduce him. He doesn't go for it. She falsely accuses him. He goes to jail. Whop! He's back down again. In jail, the favor of God is on him, and he becomes an assistant to the jailer. I mean, he's still in jail. And then he interprets someone's dream there, and years later, that person mentions him to the king when the king needs a dream interpreted. And in one day, 24 hours, he goes from being in jail to being called to speak before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the the world at that time. And Pharaoh then promotes him to second in command in the kingdom and puts him over the preparations for the famine that the dream he just interpreted foresaw would come. In 24 hours, he went from the prison to the palace. Here's the thing. We do not know 
what the next 24 hours, much less the next 24 days, 24 months have in store for us. We don't know. But we can sabotage the potential with our words and our attitude. When we hold on to our past, we keep ourselves there. When we refuse to forgive, we keep ourselves there. We shouldn't be holding on to the past, whether that be the, the, the struggles that we've had or the victories. We're not a museum keeper. We don't need to just stay in what God did for us eons ago. We can be grateful for it. We remember it. But we move forward. And above all, forgive. Nothing lashes you to your past more than unforgiveness. Oh, my goodness. If, if I could just gift my kids something, it would be that they have a forgiving heart and that they marry people with forgiving hearts. That's just, wow. Why? Because if you are holding on to the past, then the pain of the past becomes a part of your present. And, and the, the hurt that you feel in the present, you will believe is coming from those around you, and you will be even more hurt. But the truth is, it's the, it's the pain of the open wounds that you didn't allow to heal because you refused to forgive. And you're holding on. Don't make a chapter in your life into the entire book. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to who, those who are the called according to his purpose. Does that say that we know all things are good? doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Not everything is good. But the Bible says that God will work Good from everything. Some people misunderstand this and they think that everything that happens is exactly what God was hoping would happen to them. Oh, I stubbed my toe this morning. God must be mad at me. Then I got a flat tire on my way to work. God's really upset with me. And then and they believe that God is doing these things to them, wanting the, every bad thing, and they get so confused and they get so upset with God and they walk away and I just, like, oh, my heart breaks because that's not what Scripture says. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father in whom there is no shadow of turning. In other words, God is the source of good. Do bad things happen? Yes, they do. And we could get into some of the reasons that they happen. Sometimes it's bad choices. Sometimes it's <clears throat> there are other things. Sometimes we step out from God's protection because of different things that we have done. But it is 
it is not God sending car accidents and cancer and no. That's not what scripture shows us. But he will take all things and he will work them for good. If we look at just a chapter in people's lives, I just want to name a few famous people. Anybody ever heard of Bill Gates? First company he started was called Trafodata, and it failed completely. If that chapter, if he had allowed that chapter to be the defining, what he could have stopped, the world would be a different place. Anyone ever heard of Oprah Winfrey? She ran away from home when she was 14, gave birth to a baby boy who died shortly after birth as a pregnant teenager. If you had looked at her life in that situation, you'd have said the likelihood that she's going to be success, very minimal. Franklin Roosevelt, a very loved and respected at the time president, very memorable. He developed polio and was paralyzed from the waist down before going into politics. It's amazing how many people who we see as success experienced amazing, significant setbacks, but they didn't stop. Mark eleven twenty five. Before I read this, I want to acknowledge there are a lot of things that happen in our life we have no control over. You don't pick who your family will be, what neighborhood you'll grow up in, where you'll be born, what school as a youngster that you attend, who your siblings are. You don't usually get to pick your classmates or your teacher. You don't get to pick what other people will say about you, although you could influence it. You don't control the economy. You don't choose which problems you'll face. Very few people ever choose to be rejected, abandoned, mistreated, or abused. But we do control our response. Mark eleven twenty five 25 says, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive, that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. Ephesians six twelve says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. How many of you have ever seen a bullfight? I've seen one in person. Anyone ever seen one on TV? Do you understand the concept? I'm glad that they're not so famous anymore. But the, under, the, the concept is, this man goes out there with a cape, and he's fighting with a bull. But it's really a misnomer. Because the man is fighting the bull, the bull is fighting the cape. The bull doesn't know who the enemy is. The bull thinks he's fighting the cape. And so the bullfighter, he just gets out of the way. Whoom! And he gets to do just, you know, he gets to be all nonchalant and fight the, the bull. And, 
And as the bull comes by, he's chasing after that cape. The bullfighter spears him with swords and eventually kills the bull. The bull, if you've ever seen, when a bull figures out who the actual enemy is, the bull usually wins. But he doesn't know. And so many of us, that's where we're at. We're fighting against people, against situations. And the Bible says that's not who our enemy is. You are wrestling against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Your enemy is not your boss. Your enemy is not your spouse. Your enemy is not your ex. Your enemy is is not your neighbors or your in-laws or whoever it is that you think you're fighting against. Forgive them and fight the real fight against the devil and the principalities and the powers. Forgive them. When you fight against them, you're like the bull fighting against the cape. You're not going to win that way. Because that's not the true enemy. Hebrews 12, 15 says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. 2 Corinthians 2.10 says, Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, I have forgiven anything. I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us. Catch that. Why does he forgive? Why does he recommend the forgiveness? He says, lest, in other words, all that forgiving was so this would be avoided, Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. What is he saying? It is, the, it is Satan's device to keep us fighting against others. Proverbs 15, 23. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth and a word spoken in due season. How good is it? Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. We speak to our situation. So many of us solidify the chapter that we're in by rehearsing it, by declaring it, by speaking that over us. It's interesting. You remember the story of the prophet. And he, I'm looking, is it Elijah? It's Elijah. Okay, Elisha or Elijah? It's Elijah. He was told he had just had a great victory. He just called fire down from heaven. He had just killed a bunch of the false prophets. He had just won this great victory. And then 1 Kings 19, 1 through 3 says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more if I do not make your life as one of as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. So he goes through all this great stuff and he gets one threat. And the, verse 3 says, and when he saw that, when he saw what? 
when he saw what she threatened to do to him. It hadn't even happened. But he visualized it, he saw it, and he began to speak that as though it was his life. And it says, and he arose and he ran for his life and he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Verse 4, it says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He began to visualize the threat. He began to accept that, and he believed this. And then in verse 10, it says, So he said, I have been very zealous for you, Lord of God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. He says, I'm alone. I'm the only one. Do you guys remember what God said? He said, I have thousands. You're not alone. But that's what he was saying. That's what he was believing. That's what he was accepting. But he was wrong. We need to recognize that our situation is not permanent. Even even if you tell me that you are 119 years old, you're diagnosed with something terrible, you are in the hospital, you are about to die, your situation is not permanent. Do we realize that? Psalms 90 verse 12 says this, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What do you think that means? He says, teach me to number my days, to recognize that my life isn't all there is, that my days are limited, and that when I have a better understanding of the nature, the temporary nature of my life, my wisdom will be increased. What does that mean? That means when we recognize that the absolute worst thing that can happen is only temporary. Our perspective will change. Our ability to act in wisdom will grow. When we start to see, first of all, the absolute worst case scenario almost never happens. And we talked about this a while back, how the devil wants to trick us into having multiple worst case scenarios and accepting the emotional cost of all of them when really... We worry about all of them, and they couldn't even all happen. You know, somebody worries about, you know, dying in a car accident and dying of cancer and dying of uh, exposure, of dying. Well, you only get to die once. You're worrying about all of these various deaths. You couldn't, the worst case scenario, you only die one of them. But we, we accept that. We we. We don't recognize the temporary nature of the setbacks. Psalms 119.19 says, I am here on earth for just a little while. 
Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Don't let your past keep you from answering the call. Don't let other people keep you from answering God's call. Don't let finances, don't let failures, don't let Satan, don't let business, don't let shame, don't let insecurity, don't let anything set you back. I'm gonna close with that. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that our past is our past and that you have shown us you have an incredible future for us. Your word says you know the plans that you have for us, plans to prosper and plans of good health. Lord, we recognize that you have great things planned for each and every one of us. I speak blessing on each person here. I pray that they would be given your supernatural perspective on the situations that they're living in. Lord, we recognize difficult situations come, but we don't have to embrace them. We don't have to stay there. Lord, help us leave our past in the past. Help us forgive, recognize the true enemy principalities and powers don't let us waste time and energy fighting against the cape in Jesus name amen if you're here today and you know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior I want to ask you to raise your hand awesome if you don't know that your sins are forgiven that you're right with God the Bible says you can know you have salvation it says in Romans 10 9 and 10 if you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and confess with your mouth that he rose from the dead you will be saved if that's you and you want that salvation you want to know with certainty I want to invite you to say that prayer with us today with every eye closed just a moment and I'm talking to those of you watching and listening online as well if you desire to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior I want to ask you to raise your hand right now if that's you I want to pray with you are you ready Say it with me. Say, Dear God, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin and that you rose from the dead. I accept your forgiveness. I choose to make you the Lord of my life. I will live to please you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome.